This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. Those eager to experience a rapid return to life as it was before COVID-19 may soon realize their wish. Unfortunately, along with the ability to return to work in an office or to dine out, we'll be reminded of the chronic traffic congestion for which our region is well known. While a year of lockdowns have drastically reduced travel, the post-pandemic return to normal promises to remind us that our mass transit system and our transportation infrastructure are woefully inadequate to serve, let alone facilitate, growth for our Commonwealth's future. My guest today is Chris Dempsey, Director of Transportation for Massachusetts and former Assistant Secretary of Transportation in the Patrick Administration. Chris has long been an advocate for a better Boston, distinguishing himself in 2014 as a vocal opponent of Boston's plans to host the Olympic Games in 2024. Now Chris and his organization are dedicating their effort to making Massachusetts a better place for transportation. His work includes critical analysis of the MBTA and the 15 regional transportation authorities, better design of roads that accommodate buses and cycle commuters, and incentives that encourage drivers to use roads during off-peak hours. While his critics will tend to focus on the costs or the inconveniences his deals impose, Chris is dedicated to using his energy to make the Commonwealth more livable and more economically productive in the future. When I return, I'll be joined by Chris Dempsey of Transportation for Massachusetts. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now joined by Transportation for Massachusetts Director Chris Dempsey. Welcome to the show, Chris. Joe, it's great to be on with you. Well, first, uh, let me uh, let me start before we talk about transportation. I want to offer a, a commendation for your work. Uh, first, I became aware of of you and here in Boston, Chris, was uh, in your work in the No Boston Olympics. This was back in 2013 and 14. I'll tell you, you earned my respect as a brave uh, David against a, an enormous Goliath. Uh, before we begin talking about transportation, do you want to reflect back now? We're uh, six years beyond that epic struggle. Um, what are your thoughts on uh, how that all went? Well, certainly it feels like a different era. I mean, it was pre-coronavirus and pre-Trump even. <laughs> and and so the nation was just at a different place and greater Boston was also. Uh, I think, you know, obviously have no regrets about the work we did there at all and are very still very proud of the work that we did. I mean, can you imagine being in the midst of trying to plan for an Olympics right now and and having the governor and the mayor, in addition to facing questions about getting people vaccines and bringing our economy back, also having to worry about questions like how to deal with a two or five or 10 or $15 billion cost overrun for the Olympics. Um, it's just not what we wanted our elected officials focused on. It's not where we wanted to see our tax dollars going. And I think the smartest cities around the world are joining Boston and saying no whether that's Hamburg or Budapest or Rome, all Calgary, Canada, all places that in the last few years have said they just don't want to deal with the hassle and the cost and they've got better things to do with their resources. We need only look at Tokyo to see uh, what, what real regret looks like. So, Yeah, I mean, um, there, there's something like $10 billion over <laughs> budget, if not more, and I'm now going to put on an Olympics with not even any fans. So, <laughs> Yeah, that, that's, that's difficult. So well done. And again, thank you again. Um, so let's uh, talk about what you've done uh, since that time. You've been a passionate advocate for better transportation in Boston. 
Um, I want to take us uh, through the pandemic, but before we get to the pandemic, let's let's go back in a time machine to roughly this time last year, almost to the day before we were talking about uh, COVID. What were your priorities then um, for transportation for Massachusetts? Joe, I think that's the right frame too, because I have to say, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, I think that the new normal is going to look a lot like the old normal. And the old normal included the worst traffic congestion of any region in the entire United States. That's two years in a row, uh, 2018 and 2019, where we were named the worst uh, congestion or, or the most congested city in the country by INRIX, which is an international traffic data firm. We had a transit system that was bursting at the seams and falling apart and literally getting derailed. We all remember the red line derailment of 2019 and how disruptive that was to people's commutes and the regional economy. Transportation has been the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions and local air pollution in Massachusetts for going on two decades now. That's also now true at the national level. So we have all these problems in transportation, all these ways that our transportation system is holding back our economy, holding back our full potential as a commonwealth, holding back our quality of life on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think a lack of solutions and a lack of problem solving from our elected officials in adopting best practices from around the country and around the world that can fix those problems and make our economy, our society, our government more efficient and more equitable at the same time. So uh, it all sounds good. Um, you're a, a member of an organization that has many supporters. Um, I don't want to have you list them all, uh, but in broad contours, who are your allies? Who are the largest uh, passionate advocates for better transportation? I can't imagine anyone not being for better transportation. And then of course, uh, if you haven't gotten where you wanted to go, who would you say is getting in the way? Is it, is, is it um, uh, indifference? Um, uh, what, what do you think is, is yeah. the obstacle to getting your goal? So it's a great question. So starting with who makes up the core of T for Mass, the coalition has been around for about a decade. We receive most of our financial support from the Barr Foundation, which is the largest private family foundation in New England. And they're very generous and allow us to enable us to do the work that we're doing. We are at our best a coalition that is more than the sum of its parts. Some of our founding members are groups that will be familiar to your listeners, the Environmental League of Massachusetts, the Conservation Law Foundation, the Metropolitan Area Planning Council, which is the Regional Planning Association for Greater Boston, we have groups like the Alliance for Business Leadership, the 495 Metro West Partnership. We tend to be folks that are that care about the environment, that care about sustainability, and also some business and institutional voices like the Kendall Square Association, for example, um, that represent large employers and sectors of the economy that know that transportation is holding them back and want to see those fixes. Now, the harder question is, What's been in the way? What are the roadblocks? And I've worked in transportation for over a decade now. I worked in the Patrick administration. I was assistant secretary of transportation there. I was there for about three and a half years. One of the things we talked about back then was that running the transportation system was a lot like being the general manager of the Red Sox, which is that everyone in greater Boston thinks that they can do a better job than the person that has that role today. It just feels like something because we use it and experience every, it every day that it should be that easy to fix and people's experiences really inform what, the, what their ideas are for solutions. Um, 
And so sometimes those solutions are um, the, the ones that actually work are either a little bit counterintuitive or I think more to the point, um, sometimes ones that the general public is, is reluctant to embrace and, and reluctant to support. And that's my uh, greatest challenge in this role is trying to persuade the public that there are solutions and ideas out there that can help fix the system. Um, and not just telling them that, but finding ways to earn their trust and prove that to them. Because if you're just a sort of salesman for this idea, um, but people don't get to experience how it can change their life, then you're never going to be successful at getting them to embrace change. We, we really need to. It's incumbent upon policymakers and thinkers um, to find ways to demonstrate that these things can improve their lives. Well, let, let's start there then where we can find some uh, agreement across across lines. I, I've read in your some of your proposals um, in your literature that uh, you do advocate uh, for something that's termed congestion pricing uh, as a way to encourage drivers to choose different times to drive other than so-called rush hour. In fact, Pioneer Institute has also been supportive of this concept of, of uh, congestion pricing. Uh, what would uh, Boston or the perhaps also in satellite cities, what would it look like if we were to adopt something like congestion pricing? First, first explain what it is and, and then how it would be implemented. Sure. So, of course, there's broad agreement that traffic congestion is a problem, or at least it was pre-pandemic. And I think many of us expect that that traffic congestion is coming back. There's all sorts of ideas about how to solve it. But there's one idea that the Federal Highway Administration and economists agree on, which is that congestion pricing is the most effective and the most sustainable way to reduce congestion. It's a very foreign concept in greater Boston and in Massachusetts, but it's actually quite common in other parts of the country. In fact, of the 10 most populous regions in the country, greater Boston is the only one that does not use some form of time of day or congestion pricing on its tolled roads. The only one that does not. In some places, it's very simple, like crossing the George Washington Bridge over the Hudson River in New York. You pay a higher toll at the peak periods and a lower toll at the off-peak periods. That's sort of similar to matinee pricing at a movie theater. You pay a little bit less for the matinee show than for the evening show because there's higher demand in the evening. It's a concept that's very familiar to people. But in other parts of the country, like Washington, D.C. and Seattle, they use a more sophisticated version of congestion pricing where the toll on the road actually increases and decreases depending on the real-time demand for the road at that exact time. Now, what that means is that the toll can fluctuate, and sometimes it might go up to four, $5, $6, $10 for a commute. Sometimes it might be as low as 50 cents or a dollar for that commute. You don't know exactly what price you might pay, but in exchange, you are guaranteed a trip time on that road. These roads have essentially eliminated traffic congestion because they found the point on the whiteboard where supply meets demand and they can keep the demand low enough so that vehicles can travel on that road at 65 or 70 miles per hour the entire time. In fact, some of these roads will actually give you a rebate on your toll if your speed drops below 50 miles per hour because you're not paying the toll for the maintenance of the road. You're paying the toll for the maintenance of a decongested experience. And if that experience is not delivered to you, then you get a rebate. Uh, that that uh, what you describe is very exciting to me. The my inner economist, uh, 
Uh, but one small detail, uh, we have uh, tolls on the Tobin and on the Pike, uh, and everybody else is driving around town for free. I, I don't understand how that would uh, be implemented beyond putting a toll literally on every road in greater Boston. Sure. And, and our history on tolling is very complicated and a source of much frustration and consternation for people, and, and rightfully so, right? So the only reason that we have tolls on the Tobin Bridge and the Turnpike is because those roads were built before the Federal Highway Interstate Act of 1956. If they had been built five or 10 years later, then they would be free roads, quote unquote, free roads, just like our other major roads and highways in Massachusetts. But they were built before, so they were grandfathered in. Now, those of us who grew up or have lived in Massachusetts for a long time will remember that in the 1980s, the Massachusetts Turnpike was actually a higher quality road than other highways in Massachusetts. And you might grumble a little bit about paying a buck 50 to pay for your toll on the turnpike, but at least in exchange, you felt like you were getting a better, smoother, faster road in exchange for that. Now, we broke down that relationship starting in the 1990s and definitely in the 2000s. And much of this is related to the big dig and the need to finance the big dig, where today you pay your toll on the turnpike or the Tobin, but your experience isn't any better or any worse than if you were driving on 128 or 93. And so the result is, of course, people hate paying tolls because they're paying money that their colleagues or their relatives that live in other parts of the state don't pay. And yet everybody's getting the same experience. It's, it's like you're putting money into this pot and then it just disappears and you never see the benefit. And so, of course, we hate that experience and we don't like that experience. Congestion pricing can start to remind us and show that you can pay a toll and actually get something back. In this case, a less congested trip. Now, what we would say, and this gets to my point earlier about needing to demonstrate to people that this actually works and it's not just some scheme to take more money out of their pocket. We would say, let's start it on places where you already have tolls like the Tobin or the Turnpike because the cost of implementing there is so much lower. I mean, basically this function is built into the tolling systems we have today. It's just never been turned on. You turn it on with a switch. It's basically a little more, you know, a little more complicated than that, but basically the same idea. And you will see reduced congestion on those roads the day you, you flip that switch. Long-term, the answer here is yes, we should be doing this, Joe, on all of the major highways, all the limited access highways in Massachusetts, especially the ones that are subject to the most congestion. Again, that's a controversial topic. People don't accept that today because they don't like paying tolls and they've never seen a benefit from those tolls. But if we can show them that there is a benefit, if we can show that the turnpike now has 20 or 50 or 80% less congestion than it did, that becomes a much more compelling story to tell folks on Interstate 93 to say, you know what, if you want to keep sitting in now your fourth or fifth generation of South Shore traffic, getting into town on 93, you can do that. But if you want to fix that problem, take a page out of what, do we, what we did on the turnpike and implement and adopt congestion pricing. So uh, the the difficult pill to swallow of uh, tolls will be easier if we know we can sail through Boston on 93 uh, with congestion pricing. I mean, it, think about how revolutionary that is, Joe. And if you could guarantee that the trip from the 495-90 interchange in Metro West to the Back Bay exit, if you could guarantee that that was going to take at most 45 minutes, no matter what day of the year or time of the year you were trying to make that trip, it opens up all sorts of opportunities for businesses for things like express bus service, or people that are just trying to get to the airport or trying to plan their day around a commute that today is impossible to do because sometimes that trip takes an hour and a half or two hours. Mm -hmm. 
Sure. Uh, it seems to me though, again, I'm thinking about the Southeast Expressway, you brought it up. So um, uh, that seems to be full all the time. Where are those cars supposed to go? At some point you must have to, uh, another dimension of, and I want to move off the congestion pricing sure. here and talk about fewer cars on the road. Um, we don't have to transition to necessarily uh, naming the T. Uh, I'm an avid uh, user of the T as well. And um, it seems pretty packed all the time. Uh, clearly you want to move people from one mode of transportation to another. Uh, where would all those cars go uh, in their interest, in their effort to avoid these uh, congestion pricing schemes? So there's a couple of things that happen. One is that people make the same trip at the same time, but in a different mode. Maybe they carpool, maybe they take an express bus, which is now newly attractive because those express buses are not sitting in traffic, or they take the red line or the commuter rail. Another thing they do, if they have the flexibility, is to shift the time of day that they drive. So they drive at a less busy time when there's less congestion. And then a third thing they do is they don't take the trip at all. And they say, you know what, it's just not worth it for me to pay this toll. I'm going to do something else instead. And I'm going to get access to what I need access to or purchase what I need to purchase in some other way. All of those three things are equally good. And now you say, well, wait a minute, what about the folks that don't have the option? Well, those are actually the folks that benefit the most. Because if you don't have the option to shift, if you have to have your pickup truck, you have to have your work van, and you have to be at the job site at a certain time, Today, you're the one who's punished the most by a road system that doesn't work for you. Tomorrow, you benefit because all the people that did have the flexibility to not take that trip and clog your road up are doing so because they have this price incentive. When we, when we charge for roads, um, we generate a revenue stream. And that revenue stream can be used to improve and enhance people's options, maybe with express buses or maybe with improvements to the rail system. And so, if you are a fiscal conservative and you're kind of tired of the idea of endless subsidies to the MBTA or public transit, then you should be attracted to this idea because in the long run, what it could do, for example, is start to wean the MBTA off of the sales tax as the way that we subsidize the MBTA and instead have it tied to a much more directly related revenue source, which is congestion pricing, where we know that we're, uh, accessing those dollars or, or charging those dollars to people that are using transportation along those corridors. You know, as frustrating as it is to pay a toll on the turnpike when you're driving in on that road and you feel like you're not getting much benefit. Imagine the guy in Pittsfield who goes and buys a flat screen television and knows that five or 10 bucks of that is going to go to pay to the MBTA that he hasn't used in a decade. That's even more frustrating. So if we want a more efficient system and more equitable from a perspective of who benefits and who pays, then tolling and congestion pricing should be an obvious choice for fiscal conservatives and free market thinkers. Uh, I like what you're saying. I guess so what we would be paying for when we pay that toll is uh, for the guy in front of us not to be there, right? That's right. Yeah. And it's a system, it's a system that better balances things out. You know, Just like when you pay the, the higher matinee price at the movie theater in the evening, you know, the guy who went for the afternoon show paid a little bit less um, who paid the matinee price but you benefited because you actually had a ticket available because he went in the afternoon instead of getting in line ahead of you for the evening. So let's uh, uh, shift our conversation to the T. Uh, again, I take it often. It's, uh, as far as I can tell, informally of my uh, less than scientific method. Uh, it seems it's, at least before the pandemic, uh, was always packed, certainly during peak hours. Uh, how many more uh, train lines can you get down the same tracks? I know there's been improvements, some new uh, cars uh, due for the orange line, et cetera. Um, do you see there, uh, the potential for substantially more people being moved through a system that is what, uh, 
the oldest in the Western hemisphere. So what would you say to that? I think there's some hope for rail to be more efficient at moving people. Um, Some of it will be on the subway where we're getting new red and orange line cars. And at least pre-pandemic, the Baker administration was talking about trying to get the headways, which is the term that's used for the time between trains on the subway, down to three minutes, which would really be revolutionary to know that a a red or orange line train was going to arrive every three minutes at a station. Gives you this freedom to not even think about a schedule and just to sort of walk down there and know a train is coming. I think another big opportunity is on the commuter rail system. We're advocates for transitioning the commuter rail to what we call regional rail, to a system that's less built around the peak periods, the 1950s uh, idea that everyone was going to be in the suburbs, get to the office at 9 a.m., leave at 5.01 p.m. and be home for dinner at 5.45. That's not really how the world works anymore. And so if we smoothed out that service over the course of the day, if we electrified the trains, if we created high-level platforms, which makes the boarding and deboarding of trains faster and easier, then we could have a system that might run at 15-minute headways throughout the day and people could rely on to get around even if they weren't working nine to five. So I think on the rail side, those are two really good options. And then I would go back to this question of what are we doing with our roads? I mean, for those who are listening to this podcast that think that the MBTA is an inefficiently run bureaucracy, I would invite them to look at our highway department, our highway system. And again, this question of how inefficiently we manage demand for our roads. In a world where we are improving that, all of a sudden the bus becomes a much better and much more attractive option to people. And I appreciate that some of your listeners might say, you know, I haven't ridden in a bus in 40 years and I'm not getting on a bus anytime soon. Again, that's okay. They can still drive, but if a couple of cars that were ahead of them in traffic on the Southeast Expressway decide to take a bus instead, well, then their trip is better and we're moving more people in and out of the city and everybody wins. Uh, speaking of buses, I want to talk more about buses. I've noticed uh, going across the Tobin, there's uh, starting to be a lane for the bus. I've seen that all over town. Again, I'm a back bear. Uh, there seem to be more and more bus lanes uh, popping up. Explain to me how that's useful. In other words, you're you're dedicating a one full lane, there aren't many of them, to a bus uh, that comes through occasionally uh, at the expense of cars that are far more abundant. In, in, uh, in other words, we're making more traffic to reduce traffic. How, how does that work? And um, I mean, I'm, I, I'm asking you, honestly, sure. it's curiosity. Yeah. So this is all about moving more people more efficiently. And that means moving more people in fewer vehicles. Probably the best example of this is on, on Mount Auburn Street in Cambridge and Watertown, where at the rush hour period, there were two lanes of traffic. And it turned out when they looked at the numbers that 50% of the human beings that were moving in that corridor at rush hour were doing so in an MBTA bus. And yet buses were less than 3% of the vehicles that were traveling on the road. So half the people and 3% of the vehicles. In a situation like that, it makes all the sense in the world to say, we're going to take half the lanes, half the space, and dedicate that to buses. It's a fairness question in terms of how we allocate our space. But what it also does is it provides much faster bus service, so it's more attractive to people to take the bus. And you might get some of those folks that have a choice between driving and a bus to get out of their car so that the folks that are still driving can also still have a, a better and smoother trip. That's essentially what we're doing on the Tobin Bridge, what MassDOT has done on the Tobin Bridge. It's, a, it's one third of the lanes, but it's something like 20, 25% of all the human beings traveling over the Tobin Bridge are doing it in a bus. So we're already close to the right ratios. And we think that making bus service 
move faster is going to make that even more attractive to people and, and ultimately equal out those ratios. So about a third of all people driving over the bridge are doing it in a bus. When you're talking about the marginal user who's, uh, been, who's not been on a bus for 40 years, do you see that uh, a faster bus would actually be a persuasive uh, case for returning to the bus you, more so than anything else? Well, I'd like to think so. Um, and, you know, some people will envision, well, gee, it's a, you know, it's a crowded MBTA bus. That's not kind of where I see myself. But let's say, you, let's say you live in the suburbs, right? And let's say you're a, a white collar worker. There are express luxury buses that could pick you up in park and ride lots and stations in the suburbs. Um, you drive there, you get on a nice air conditioned coach with your own space, maybe your own, you know, video screen in front of you, put your headphones on. And 30 minutes later, you are at South Station uh, or you're at Back Bay Station and you're able to get to your job that way. Um, it can be a, a sort of premium experience for folks that, that want that, or it can be a more utilitarian experience like the MBTA buses today. But there's no question that as a society, it, it's more efficient for more people to be on a bus and less people to be driving signal occupancy vehicles. The whole point of cities is that they bring together a lot of people into a small space. That's the definition of a city. And it's the agglomeration effect of, of smart people in places like Kendall Square or downtown Boston that has made the Massachusetts economy thrive over the last 40 years. If we are, want to have a lot of people in a small space, we need to be moving people more efficiently. And that means buses and trains. It cannot mean everyone being in their own automobile. Sure, let's change the topic a little bit and uh, widen our focus. Um, just last week, a $1.9 trillion uh, spending bill uh, was passed. A great deal of that was going to uh, earmark for mass transit. I believe we've got maybe somewhere between $1 and $2 billion that's uh, headed towards uh, mass transit. Uh, is this a game changer? Uh, put some dimension on that. I think the, the T's annual budget is a little more than $2 billion a year. Yep. Um, how, how does a, a windfall, if you can call it that, the government doesn't have its own money, it's our money, but... It's giving us two billion of our money for our RT. How would you? Uh, what would you do with that? So this is unprecedented federal support for transit. If you add up the three rescue and relief and recovery packages that passed, so the CARES Act in March of 2020, what's called CARISA, which passed in December, and then the American Rescue Plan Act, which just passed last week in in mid March, all total all totaled up. Those three add up to about two billion dollars for the MBTA. And that's compared to about $800 million a year that the MBTA takes in in fare revenue every year. So even if the MBTA had not collected a single fare in 2020 and in 2021, they would still have the resources available to them from the federal government to keep running service. Um, so it is, it's a substantial amount of funding. And what we would say is that that funding should be used to continue the service the MBTA has been running rather than implement cuts. We were disappointed that the administration has followed through with cuts of about 20% of all subway service and a significant extent of the, of the bus service. Um, what they're saying is, well, while ridership is lower, we want to save some of those funds and save them for the future. And there's certainly a reasonable case to make there, but I think not in the, in the context and scale that we're dealing with. The savings that the administration is putting forward are going to save them about $21 million this fiscal year versus again, $2 billion of federal support. So they could easily do both, keep the service they've been running and also have funds available for future investments. 
Well, it seems to me it took them a while to reduce those uh, those uh, services. Uh, and unfortunately, I'm sure it'll take a little while to undo those uh, reduction in services. Um, uh, but let's let's change our focus then also now to the state house. Much news has been again last week a transportation. I believe the new deal for transportation uh, was uh, floated. Um, uh, some extraordinary uh, uh, measures in there. Um, let's take them one at a time. There's also a 50% increase in it's it's implemented over time in the gas tax. Uh, what does transportation for Massachusetts have to say about? The gas tax and increase in the gas tax and its and its justification. Well, we support an increase in the gas tax, and for these reasons, uh, the first is that Massachusetts has about the thirty-first highest gas tax in the country. The days of Massachusetts, at least in the case of the gas tax, are are well and gone. Um, we're high, we're lower than every state in New England and the Northeast, other than New Hampshire. And if you look at the states that I really think are competitor states the large coastal diverse economy states like Pennsylvania, New York, Washington state, California, their gas taxes tend to be about twice the Massachusetts gas tax. So since 1991, we've raised the state gas tax only three cents. That's about 14% since 1991. It's about a fourth of the increase due to inflation at, this, at the same period of time, um, in, just in our general economy. And MBTA fares have gone up 200% or more against 14% in the gas tax. So the message we've been sending to people for the last 30 years is drive more and take the T less. And we should not be surprised when the result of that is congested roads, air pollution, and frustration. Um, so to us, it's an obvious yes that the gas tax should be increased to put us in line with our peer states that are supporting their diverse economies with diverse transportation options. Chris, uh, I'm sure your analysis tells you that uh, gas taxes is somewhat regressive, right? We, you mentioned some people just have to get to work, have to draw, drive long distances. They can't afford a, uh, a Tesla. Um, so uh, this gas tax falls to, particularly in the wake of a pandemic that we both know affected uh, lower income workers more than higher income workers. Those higher income workers can leave that Tesla in their driveway and work telecommute from home, whereas uh, some of the more service oriented people who have to drive are going to feel the full brunt of this kind of a tax. Is, is this the right way to go about raising revenue? Well, we would say yes, because we think incentives are important. Um, I mean, certainly some of your listeners might think that the only way to fund transportation is wealth taxes and income taxes. I'm not sure how many of them actually <laughs> believe that, but that's, that's sort of the alternative here. Um, corporate taxes, you know, if you want to fund the system that way, and that's fine. And we support some of that too, but we think it's so important to get the incentives right. You know, uh, when I talk to folks who are advocates for people uh, of lower income, people that are in labor, you know, working working folks, I hear a couple of things. One is that they're suffering the worst from the transportation status quo. You know, I talked to an advocate in Chinatown at the intersection of 93 and 90, and they have to put air filters in their school because of the pollution that comes from the highways near their school. They're actually trying to physically move the location of a park away from the highway because the air pollution is so bad there. And we need to have different incentives if we're gonna change and solve that problem. The other thing I hear is that, you know, worse than paying the difference between maybe $3 for a gallon of gas and $3.10 with a 10 cent gas tax increase, is that when you're a low income driver, it's really the uncertainty about what fuel is gonna cost because of all these swings in the oil market and international affairs that impact our gas prices. 
you can do okay if you know that it's going to be $3.10. The problem is that sometimes you show up at the pump and it's $4.50 or $3.80, and that breaks your budget. If we want to be providing people with options to get away from that, to have more energy produced in Massachusetts and used for transportation in Massachusetts, which is going to require electrifying vehicles, it's going to require getting people to use the T, then we need to be able to fund those alternatives. And the gas tax seems to me like a totally reasonable way to do that. So um, again, I don't want to get too far off track on this on this issue, but let's take a, a time uh, machine into the future. Uh, I, I I think it's more or less inevitable that we'll all be driving electric cars uh, in in the not too distant future, certainly in our lifetimes. Where does the tax uh, go then? And um, uh, if indeed you, it's the gasoline you want to tax, uh, why not fund infrastructure for let's say electric cars as an alternative? Right? Why why focus on the tax on the gas? Well, well. So today, the gas tax is still a pretty good uh, user fee. I mean, yes, there are electric vehicles, but 97, 98% of the cars on the road are still cars that are internal combustion engine powered and that use gasoline. So there's a connection between the use of gasoline and the funding of the system. We want to see gasoline usage go down and eventually be replaced by electric vehicles. So that's another reason to use that incentive to nudge people to electric vehicles. Um, and then when we move people to electric vehicles, hopefully we're also doing it in conjunction with increasing wind and solar and renew renewable power in Massachusetts so that we're not sending all of those dollars to Texas or Louisiana or Saudi Arabia or Nigeria, which is where all of our transportation dollars go today. I mean, Massachusetts consumers send something like seven to eight billion dollars a year out of the state that never comes back just to pay for the gasoline that we put in our cars. In a future where we're driving EVs and those EVs are powered by windmills off the coast of Cape Cod or by nuclear power or by solar power in central Massachusetts, then those dollars are staying here. They're being used to support people that are repairing those systems, that are installing electric chargers. Uh, that's money that stays in our economy and it should be very good for economic development. So uh, Transportation for Massachusetts offers full-throated support to nuclear power. Or did I get that on the... <laughs> Well, we're gonna, we're going to stay away from the, from from that <laughs> All particular question. All right, I'll, I'll question, let you off the Joe, hook. I'm I'm going to let you off the hook. Well, perhaps um, a, a conversation for another show. <laughs> um, among the more remarkable uh, aspects of the uh, um, transportation New Deal uh, was the notion that we might have our buses that we already talked about uh, be free of fares. Um, what is your position on that? And uh, if you're for it, uh, what, what's appealing about this notion? Yeah, we're still thinking through this one. I mean, we certainly have people in our coalition that are excited about the idea of free buses. There's a strong case to make that buses improve the overall equity of our transportation system and that people that are riding them today, if you look at the demographics, tend to be lower income, tend to be folks that are working in the service economy, and they have some of the worst and toughest commutes and giving them a break by making the bus free makes some sense. But I also agree that we need to fund our transportation system, and in particular, our public transit system, and fares play an important part of that. So we've tended to prefer an approach that would create a low-income fare product that would allow folks that are of lower incomes to apply for that and have access to the MBTA, still paying, but at a cheaper rate, rather than the idea of just making the system free or even buses free. I think it's a healthy debate that we can have between those two options. Um, but in general, we want to see public transit be made more cost effective and cost competitive with driving 
And so looking at our fare structure makes sense. I want to talk with you about uh, an interesting uh, a change I've seen all around me in my neighborhood are, are bike lanes. Now, we've had bike lanes in Boston for some time, but there seems to have been an explosion during the uh, lockdown period uh, all around the common, the garden, through the back bay, uh, into Cambridge. Uh, um, I'm curious, how does one create a bike lane? Who decides where it goes? Uh, how do we uh, fund it? Uh, how do we build it? Uh, and then ultimately, who assesses whether... Uh, after we've built it, whether it was worth building. So most bike lanes are on municipal roads, roads that are controlled by the cities and towns rather than roads that are controlled by the, the highway department or the state. So in some places, it's the select board or the transportation board. And in some places, it's just the mayor and the Department of Public Works that decide where they go. Um, you know, I think some drivers or folks that, that don't cycle as often get frustrated when they see a bike lane that looks empty. Uh, or that doesn't seem to be used, and maybe that meant the reduction of a, of a travel lane. I think those of us that do advocate for bike lanes, and I'm certainly in that category, um, want to see bike lanes put in places where they are going to be used and where they're going to be effective. And that tends to be places where they can create links in a broader network. So you mentioned the bike lanes around the common. I've used those myself as a cyclist. And for me, it's made it far safer for me to go from my office in downtown Boston to where I live in Brookline Village. There are parts of that trip, whether I'm going along the Esplanade or the Muddy River Path, where it is unbelievably safe and, and enjoyable as a cyclist because I'm not dealing with conflicts with traffic at all. There's uh, hold on, you are, you're dealing with conflicts. I'm the, the runner that you, uh, uh, I'm always on the river getting buzzed by fair, cyclists. Fair so there enough. is danger, just not for you. I, 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 I give you uh, <laughs> as much warning as I can with my bell that I'm, that I'm coming up behind you. All right. Um, other places like Com Ave, where there's a, a, a bike lane that did not take away from a, a travel lane, um, but feels pretty safe for a cyclist. But then there was always this gap between Com Ave and downtown Boston. Having these bus, these bike lanes around the common and the gardens allows that, that connection to take place and makes me more likely to cycle, but also a whole set of other people that maybe weren't cycling before that now feel safe doing that. So we strongly support it as part of a network. It's, it's good for reducing traffic congestion because it gets people out of cars. It's good for our public health. It's good for our economy. People that are cycling are making shorter trips. That means they may be going to support small businesses to do that. Um, we want to see more of that in Boston and communities around the Commonwealth. All right, we're getting close to our time, into our time together. Um, uh, you mentioned, uh, you spoke to our audience a little bit earlier. Uh, I'll give you one last chance to say, okay, we've got our listeners in the suburbs or just outside of Boston. They love their car. They want to be able to take uh, it into Boston. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they don't see the need for change. What would you, uh, say as a, um, your best case for someone like this, why your strategies will benefit them? Yep. So it's a great question, Joe. And here's what I'd end with. Traffic is what nerds call a non-linear function. <laughs> and what that means is that every car that gets added to a busy road creates more congestion than the car that came before it. And that's a bad outcome. It's how we go from an open road to gridlock very quickly. There's one silver lining to that, which is that when you take a car off the road, you, you reduce congestion significantly. Um, and the, the rule of thumb here is that reducing the number of vehicles on the road by about 5% can reduce the total amount of traffic congestion by about 20%. Think about pre-pandemic when you might drive into the city on a Friday morning in the summer and the road felt much more open. It's not that 50% of people went on vacation, it's that about five or 10% did, 
but the, the change in redu reduction of congestion was enormous. And so what our policies are trying to do is not trying to get everybody off the road. We're trying to get maybe 5, 10, 15% of people that do have the flexibility to get off the road. The remaining 85% of people that still want to drive every day can still keep driving, but they now have a decongested fast trip rather than suffering from the worst traffic congestion of any region in the country. That's what our goal is. That's what we want to do. And we think we can be allies with suburban drivers in making that case. I think you sold at least a few, if not all our, I don't know if all our audience is persuaded, but at least a few. So for those who have been persuaded, where can they find you, Chris? Where can they find transportation for Massachusetts if they want to learn more or join your organization? Our website is t4ma.org. That's the number four. So t, the number four, ma.org. We're on Twitter at t4mass. We'd love to engage with people. And uh, we know that not everything we're talking about is an easy sell, but we want to make progress together. We know we need to do it. We need to make this Commonwealth strong, economically productive and vibrant. And fixing transportation has to be a part of that. Well, thank you very much, Chris. This has been a great conversation. Thank you, Joe. Great to talk with you. This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support us. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your favorite podcatcher. It would make it easier for others to find us on that podcatcher if you offer a favorable review or a five-star rating. Of course, it's always welcome if you want to share us with friends. If you have ideas or comments or suggestions for me for future episodes, you're welcome to contact me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for another episode of Hubwonk.